Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. So welcome to this CSR port uh, that's made in collaboration with the Sustainability Business Day. 2015 and we say especially welcome to George Kell uh, executive director of United Nations Global Compact very welcome here oh great to be with you here today could you tell us a little bit more about yourself I tried to find some information about you in Google and it was not that much yeah well I'm an engineer by training Uh, I left Germany in 82 I spent a couple of years in Africa, in Asia, uh, worked as a financial analyst. Uh, Then I joined the United Nations and uh, uh, became interested in corporate sustainability in the mid-90s when it was clear that business was going global but governments remained local. So there was increasingly a gap out there on social issues, on human rights, on environmental issues. that's where the journey really started. And now you live in the uh, United States, I presume? Yeah, since you in New York, York actually for 20 years now. Oh. Uh, so New York is my home now. And you have family and children? I have kids born there. They're Americans, actually. <laughs> okay, so they, so they don't feel they are belong to Germany? No, I feel like a first-generation immigrant. Uh, mm. and, uh, <laughs> You have an advanced degree in economics yeah. and engineering from Technical University of yeah. Berlin. You told us before that you were working with various companies in Africa and Asia. What were, were the companies? Well, I started off uh, in Germany with the Fraunhofer Institute uh, doing applied research uh, for uh, efficiency, layout, m- optimization. This was the era when CAD CAM computer edit design just uh, started to emerge. So contract work for automotive industries, BMW or Siemens or companies like that. And then around the world, uh, in Africa and Asia, as a financial analyst more, doing pre-feasibility studies for investment banks, uh, you know, whether or not to build a, say, a small steel plant in Zambia, whether or not to build a, a, a printing facility in Mexico, or uh, uh, infrastructure pipe uh, manufacturing facility in Pakistan. Uh, And my job was to do the pre-feasibility assessment, you know, looking into the market, the potential, the technology, and the financial viability. And you gave advices in those issues. And it ended up in a pre-feasibility study uh, with a strong recommendation for or against. Did the companies follow your... It was through a a pool of uh, uh, investment banks uh, who then made decisions uh, on that. I think uh, three of the projects I recommended were implemented, yes, including the money printing facility in Mexico, (laughs) which I'm very proud (laughs) because they used to... (laughs) Going back in history, (laughs) this was my... Yeah, yeah, well, well, just a few of those, so... Um, Now it's uh, important because uh, already then it was clear that the uh, social issues and the uh, enabling environment, so to speak, uh, was a very important factor in in assessing future viability. Because when you make a scenario planning on on, uh, pricing, on on demand, on uh, uh, all, uh, all the things that have to be in place, it's clear that the country-specific uh, environment is a very, very big factor. You know, 
not only in terms of costing inputs, uh, uh, but also in terms of future viability, uh, infrastructure, uh, markets, and so forth. To me, in my limited worldview, you are one of the real founders of, of Global Compact. You and Kofi Annan are the forefront figures of, of uh, Global Compact. And how come you ended up beside Kofi Annan there to actually start off the Global Compact? I was lucky enough to do the speech for him, oh. <laughs> called it the Global so Compact. That's, <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's how the reason. you should do it. No, it was in, uh, uh, together with John Ruggie. I have to okay, share yeah. that privilege with my uh, great colleague uh, and former boss, John Ruggie. Mm. Uh, it was in 98 when uh, John uh, actually said, look, uh, the boss, Kofi Annan, is willing to go to the World Economic Forum, but only on condition if he has a really great speech, a speech that really moves the world yeah so I was given uh, quite some time to think about a really great speech yeah? and I spent six months working on the global compact speech in 98 and this was the time remember a year before Seattle when the writing was on the wall already that there's social discontent uh, there were uh, protests in the US you know on supply chain issues Nike uh, labor conditions um, There was already a good movement in some countries, uh, in the U.S., for example. You know, the Valdez Exxon uh, spill created an environmental movement. Uh, in the U.K., there was a great forward-looking thinking, the third way, Tony Blair before mm. Iraq. Mm. Remember that good days. Bill Clinton was just riding the high waves of, you know, balancing the budget and yet having a positive vision. Lula just became president in uh, in Brazil, you know, from the Workers' Party making inroads. So in those days, there was a, a positive outlook about the future, global integration, China just about to join the WTO. And in this context, you know, it was clear business was going global uh, on a very fast pace, but social and environment issues were neglected. The world agreed on the WTO, you know, a rule-based approach on trade, ready to enforce. Uh, today, by the way, that has changed too. Uh, we're going backwards. Mm -hmm. But environmental, social, human rights issues were neglected. And this gap out there, you know, was not good for anybody. There was a backlash by trade unions, by NGOs, uh, church organizations, and business increasingly had to make a choice too. You know, what form of capitalism do we want when we go global? Is it a winner takes it all, whiskey capitalism, or vodka capitalism, or <laughs> state capitalism, or is it a form of market uh, markets that are? Uh, have social, environmental, and governance criteria and values as part of the underpinning. And the Global Compact speech delivered by Kofi Annan then at the World Economic Forum <coughs> was quite a hit, so to speak. Mm. You know, it made the front pages of, uh, of various international newspapers. And initially, we had no intention of actually doing an initiative. I just wanted to do a good policy speech for the boss. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so what was, what was, was the highlights of the speech? The highlight was uh, uh, calling on CEOs to be more responsible, to recognize that uh, as they go global, they also shape societies mm -hmm. and with power comes responsibility and it makes sense to align around universal principles that member states in principle governments have already agreed to, you know, on human rights, the Universal Declaration, the fundamental principles and rights at work, the Rio Declaration on Environmental Stewardship, and then Anti-Corruption uh, International Convention. So the argument was, look, here are international norms which in theory are recognized by governments, but whose implementation is lagging behind. U.S. business leaders, you can actually help to fill that void. It will help you because it makes your own organization ethically more robust and stable, and you will also help societies and shape markets in the right way. So it was a call to action to embrace 10 principles, universal principles, and to take action, to partner on what we then called UN goals. Yeah? So two strategic objectives. One is mainstreaming principles within organizations. That's what you could call what then became the CSR movement. You know, how do you change within your organization so that social environmental issues become part of strategy and operations? And the second call, take action, collaborate on bigger challenges out there. And you can now, f under that headline is, Uh, building markets at the bottom of the pyramid mm. uh, and so forth. 
So this dual uh, call to action is still for the Global Compact, uh, our mission, and uh, uh, we basically have adopted over the years on how to implement it. But initially it was just a policy speech. So the Global mm. Compact as an initiative is an accident. It grew out of a speech. It's a lovely accident <laughs> then. It's one of the best accidents we've heard yeah. about so far, I have to say. <laughs> so you made a lovely speech and he turned around and said, we have to do something. And no, then, then actually CEOs and uh, some uh, oh. smart ambassadors came oh. back and some ministers who then wrote uh, glowing letters to Kofi Annan saying, great speech, Secretary General, but uh, you know, please translate it into something real. And then really the hard part came because uh, we had no money, we didn't know what to do, you know. Uh, so we went for a staging event in New York in the year 2000 and we wanted then this to be the exit event, you know, declare victory. Now we have the Global Compact and the principles, let's bring a few CEOs and civil society and labor unions together and then walk away. So we staged this event and 40 companies came who took a stand on the principles, uh, labor unions, civil society, and they all agreed that this is just the beginning, not the end. And through learning, dialogue and partnerships, we should move forward. So the real journey then started in 2000 uh, when this uh, initiation event in New York turned out to be the beginning of building an initiative. And then we went through four distinct phases as an initiative. The first four years were really about learning to talk and walk, because what does it mean in concrete terms? How do you build something uh, like this? And then came a phase of governance, what I would call governance, because working out of the UN, we had to build a new organization. The Global Compact today is the UN's first and only public-private network-based organization multi-stakeholder, business-led, global and local. So it's a mouthful, I know it's a network-based organization. We have now 86 country networks around the world. Some of them are very strong and very vibrant. We have eight global issue platforms. So all this had to evolve and it has to be governed. Mm -hmm. So we created a board, uh, an annual meeting for the local network, self-governed and so forth, a foundation, and all, everything you need to actually build an organization. When you're saying we, who, who were we then? It was well, obviously you. And yeah, uh, basically I started alone uh, and uh, had one assistant the first two years and then uh, a few young people uh, as interns. And those uh, people have now grown up, they're still with me. It's a core team of eight or 10 people. Uh, and over time now we, we grew, so to speak. Currently we have 100 people in New York. We have probably 500 around the world. And we also then, in the third phase, the came, came then the phase of what I would call uh, coming to grips with the value drivers and building issue platforms. So we created PRI, Principles for Responsible Investment, which is now headquartered in London. We spun it off. It's very vibrant, bringing together asset owners and asset managers to make sure that the financial community is also catching up. And we created an education initiative called Prime Principles for Responsible Management Education, now with 600 business schools involved. So they integrate the philosophy in the curriculum, primarily of MBA courses. And throughout these 15 years of building, I think the most important component has also been the bottom-up growth through the local networks. Uh, I was just in Nigeria uh, a few days ago, for example, our network there is booming now, uh, but all through Latin America, in Asia, China, Japan, India. So it's a global movement now, and it continues to, to thrive. And now the more important steps are coming in how do you bring this into the next phase, which I would call transformation. How do you go to real impact and scale? Yeah? And that's the next challenge ahead. It's a really amazing success story. I mean, of, of, it's a growth of the story. two people yeah. in an office, basically, yeah. and then the growth yeah. of 100 yeah. people in a, a global network. Yes, yes. It's quite an exciting. So if, if I was a company, uh, which I happen to be as well, I would come to, I will join Global Compact to learn, to make dialogue and to find partners within sustainability. Correct. Uh, and, and how many you have, you were mentioning you have, how many hundreds of companies do you have signed there are up? Currently 8,200 active mm. corporate participants and 4,000 non-corporate participants. Uh, what it means when you sign on as a CEO and we 
demand now that also the board signs on, so not just the CEO, but uh, we also want board endorsement. Um, it means you commit to make known within your own organization your ethical value orientation, but also at least once a year to make public through what we call a communication on progress, the COP, mm. <laughs> mm. Uh, uh, against established benchmarks. We recommend GRI, but there are other benchmarks as well. We are deeply involved with integrated reporting. And this annual disclosure is a requirement now. If a participant does not meet the annual disclosure requirement, we actually delist them. And we already delisted more than 4,000 corporate participants, which is kind of a sad thing because you know, winning them over is one thing, but then if they do not uh, complete the journey or stay on the journey, uh, then we unfortunately have to kick them out. Yeah, but it's applying the rules of the game yes, in a way. I mean, correct, I th and yeah. I think that is important to apply yes, the rules of the game. Yeah as well and but you do have a membership fee as well no it's a recommended it's okay. a recommended voluntary annual contribution mm. only uh, 18 percent of our participants actually oh. do make a voluntary annual contribution uh, the share is much higher in the nordic world uh, okay. uh, it's actually 65 percent uh, uh, so there it's taken more serious but in many parts in asia uh, <clears throat> it's very low and often then the uh, small annual financial contribution goes to our local networks, which are very happy about too, because we want the local networks to, to grow. So Global Compact is still funded by the UN system? No, so we, yes, uh, let me explain that. Okay, we, yes. We <laughs> do not get a single dollar from the United Nations, so it's 100% extra budgetary, as it's called. Uh, in the beginning, some governments supported us through a trust fund, including Sweden mm. uh, and the Nordics uh, and Europeans primarily. Uh, and they have supported us uh, for 15 years now. Uh, but starting in 2005, the annual voluntary contributions of the private sector of business have grown. And now they account for 80% of our budget. And the government uh, soft uh, support is 20%. Our annual budget is fairly modest. It's $20 million. It's said that one of the <coughs> great challenge of the sustainability development of the world is what path China will choose. Uh, what is your view on that issue? Well, we can actually take claim for having introduced uh, sustainability responsibility in yes, China in the year 2001 and then uh, big in 2004. Uh, <coughs> China is on the move uh, for a long time now and uh, like all countries. Uh, it's amazing that the state-owned companies actually are quite serious, uh, and now, especially on climate change and low carbon, uh, it's the world's biggest investor on renewables uh, starting last year already. Um, there's still a lot to be done in many areas, obviously, and when we moved in there the first time, uh, you know, issues such as uh, human rights and uh, the right to organize uh, at the workplace uh, where and still are big issues. Companies have learned now that they can practice within their own sphere of influence, you know, uh, workers' organizations, for example, and many do so. So there is a lot of uh, good momentum going on, I would say, and integrating China into the world economy based on universal principles, I would argue, is one of the most important things ahead. Because if you do not succeed on that on that front, then the future of the world market, you know, will look differently. And are you optimistic about it? Would, would I mean, because as you say, this is, this is one of the big hurdles for sustainability. So I am optimistic if the world stays on a course of a commitment of building a global market that mm. is based on universal principles. If we abandon that and we fall more back into a national, you know, narrowly defined uh, interpretation, then I fear uh, the, the house will fall apart anyway. Yeah? Uh, China is still on a track uh, economic development uh, and yes, security issues increasingly dominate the agenda, unfortunately. Uh, but I'm, I'm optimistic because the level of interdependence now is so high, so high that uh, it would be suicide for all parties involved to unravel that. Uh, and Swedish companies, European companies, American companies depend on growth in China. China depends on growth elsewhere. 
the level of interdependence has enormously increased over the last 20 years. And not just in what we think of technology, the flow of knowledge, but the material interdependencies. No city anywhere in the world could survive anymore without the interconnectedness. The level is very deep. Uh, and I know many people, citizens, do not realize how deep interdependencies have already advanced. So we have to manage it in a, in a mutually, in a positive way. And this is the big challenge of the future, and this is where politics comes in as well. True, true. Can I dive a little bit into that? Well, did we talk about the human rights and democracy we questions? Can, yeah, you can definitely. I, I would just like to add that to, to what you just yeah. said, because that's a great issue. I mean... Uh, China's view on human rights and democracy. I would, I would actually cast it wider. I would claim that uh, in today's world, the, the biggest challenge ahead besides climate change, which really is a serious thing and uh, we have to come to grips with it, the second biggest challenge and probably the one that will play out before the impact of climate change is felt is what I would call the government governance crisis worldwide, mind you. I think we have in the last uh, 10, 15 years neglected uh, uh, reflecting on, on what is good governance. Uh, it has become fashionable in many countries to bash governments. They're ineffective, the bureaucrats, they don't deliver, you know, so let's outsource and uh, uh, not support them. Uh, we should ask the question now again, how can we make government governance effective and how can we support the voice of the region in the middle, so to speak. Look, uh, states are failing everywhere in many parts of the world. Violence is on the rise. Uh, and I, you know, it's not just uh, in the Middle East, it's in many parts of the world where extremism, populism, nationalism is on the rise currently. Yeah? Uh, it's growing and this is a big threat to openness, to rule-based approach to global market integration. It's a huge threat. Business assumes still that, uh, you know, we can invest everywhere because the basic uh, frameworks are in place, WTO, bilateral agreements, but all this needs political caretaking. The will, the political will to m make openness work is fundamental for business to continue to thrive and grow. And this will is currently being challenged by populism, nationalism, inward orientation, and in some parts of the world, extremism. And these are the real, the new threats, so to speak, uh, that we see growing everywhere. And I would call it the dark clouds on the horizon of government governance failure. And that's why also today in the opening, I, I made a, a few remarks to that effect, because I think CEOs are sleeping at the wheel when they assume that the future will be like the last 10 years have been. Don't take for granted the political will to sustain openness. So we have to support what I would call the, the voice of the region at the center uh, and to make compromises and make governments effective. We need the rulemaking part of it. We need the stability. We need education uh, that is fair, equitable. Uh, we need health systems that don't discriminate, that only allow the rich uh, to have a healthy life. So we it's the social dimension of we have to work on more, I believe, worldwide. Are, but because I, that's where I get a bit confused because are the CEOs really sleepy? Because I, I feel very often you, you enter into a company. One of the things that they have to deal with is that applied sustainability will different be different in different places. When it yeah. comes to environmental issues, it kind of goes without saying that due to the material that you're using, it's going to be different. But when it comes to social issues, it's very much what I think what the businesses learned is that if you go into certain states, you have to take a different responsibility. So applied sustainability will be different if you go to Congo Very or if true. you go to Sweden, obviously, yeah. because the government has another way of, of dealing with or taking responsibility. So isn't that what the Kwanokan has been learning by the I agree. Last? There are good trends and uh, building markets for the poor, for example, is a great way of empowering the poor and inclusiveness is now an established uh, 
principle. Business basically has internalized uh, the thinking now that, uh, you know, where economic growth is going, that's where we want to invest in and grow with. So that is a good news. I, I totally agree. But I still think there are many legacy issues of the corporate world that they haven't cleaned up yet, so to speak. They're still outsourcing lobbying to sometimes dinosaur organizations, which still uh, yes. represent, you know, uh, old views, like, you know, any form of regulation is an interference with, with freedom. And it's a socialist conspiracy, uh, whereas we want a more enlightened uh, attitude here, which looks at uh, regulation, like on climate change or related issues, from a future problem-solving uh, perspective and not from a legacy ideological angle. So there's still uh, work to be done, I would claim, in these areas. But you're right. Business is learning and has learned that it's a big breakthrough when investing around the world, that empowering poor and growing markets actually is a way forward. And that is the good news. You did put your finger on that on the stage as well, because you were saying that, that businesses need to clean up their own agenda by saying you can't, I'm going to make an interpretation and see if I understood it correctly, by saying basically you can't have one sustainability department driving you know, high, high value or high insight environmental issues while you have a public policy driving for no laws. And, exactly. And, and exactly. Do you, do you, is that happening a lot? Yes, well, we have started a couple of global working groups on that, especially mm. in the area of climate change, mm. where it's uh, very obvious and clear what has to be done and what should not be done. And where it's still unfortunately the case where national business associations, and I'm t- talking on a global perspective, I could oh, mean... Oh, you can talk about a Swedish no, no, perspective I, as well. I, <laughs> no, it's uh, happening here now. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> where still the legacy outsourcing of government affairs, you know, is still having the impact that uh, business associations basically block any form of regulatory changes on grounds that this would interfere with, with freedom, yeah? Uh, and here we argue, look, it's time to embrace carbon pricing. Yeah? So we should rather think now about how do we build viable markets for carbon that integrate externalities, because that will allow then the green growing space to grow faster. Um, so this is what I meant with bringing into alignment corporate sustainability goals on the one hand with government affairs on the other. Yes. So how do we get these industry associations? Because I even had yeah. that conversation with it's a happening. Large it's happening. There's some good developments and I don't want to mention names now, but in some countries uh, there's a real movement going on where industry associations are changing. Mm. They are changing currently uh, from uh, blocking anything that could smack regulatory intervention towards repositioning which kind of regulation is smart and makes sense. It is happening. But there are still major markets out there where this is not yet happening, uh, uh, where the legacy issue of the lowest common denominator, so to speak, still dictates and has a lock on domestic policies. It's the national associations which basically have a lock on national policymaking. And don't forget, despite our global interdependence, all politics is still local. You know, decisions are made made at country level or at state and city level. So it's very important that we we work now with industry associations for them to also update their their uh, approaches on sustainability. I call it the long march through the institutions. Mm. You know, we have to win them over because once we are winning over uh, industry associations at national level and they became advocates of sustainability and truly embrace it also in their interface with governments, then we have won it. Then sustainability is a transformative So force. should we win them over or should we create new ones? No, we should win them over. We should uh, win them over. Yes. I, look, institutional change, there are two ways for, for change. One is a revolution. Yeah. <laughs> Historically, it yeah. has happened again and again and it will happen again and again. The other one is actually the march through the institutions. And there's plenty of uh, encouraging examples, you know. Uh, and uh, we probably were both hippies when we were young, uh, mm, presumably, well, yeah. uh, kind <laughs> of. Uh, uh, well, at least in, yeah. I'm probably a bit older, but yeah. in, in my case, the big social agenda was, you know, uh, a revolution against the older generation who were in denial about the past where I happened to have been born. Yeah, So it took, took generations uh, to win them over. Yeah, And I think the battle was won. Uh, and sustainability, in my view, is a movement. Uh, it's a, a global movement now and going towards uh, transformation, 
it needs scale and critical mass. And to get there, we need to win over uh, also the industry associations that are so critical at national level. Maybe some new organizations help here and there, and they're, they're coming uh, up everywhere like mushrooms, which is wonderful. But don't underestimate the established uh, associations and their long-standing deep connections. We want to win them over, absolutely. Yeah, it's just that I, I, time is getting limited and I'm getting impatient. And, yeah. and it's I usually give the advice of saying work with your friends instead of talking to your enemy because your enemy is going to keep on being your enemy forever. So if you show the mass of your friends yeah. instead, we will eventually drive the change. And that's going to be much more fun yeah. than trying to convert these people. But it's happening sometimes faster than you think, because if companies individually become more in pushing for sustainability, and if they actually make clear to their organizations whom they financially support and where they do sit on their boards, that they want to see a change in, in policy setting and a change in tone and practice, it will happen overnight. Mm. It can happen very fast. We have a new working group, uh, Global Compact, with the Global Industry Associations, and we convened for the first time last uh, October. And I was totally amazed to see how Global Industry Association, whether it's consumer goods, chemicals, and so forth, how, how they are already in the move of change. It's quite amazing. Uh, and we will convene another meeting next June when the Global Compact will turn 15. And I'm sure, I know many of them have substantive new work streams ongoing on sustainability. i give you one example. The World Federation of Stock Exchanges, a very mm. powerful organization overseeing global stock exchanges. We have a side activity going on called the World the Sustainable Stock Exchange Initiative uh, next to PRI, very important finance. And five years ago, when we started this initiative, we got visitors from the World Federation. You know, a gentleman in gray suit came and they looked at us like socialist conspirators, you know, and mm. uh, they reminded us about uh, uh, the philosophy of free markets and what it means. Yeah? And they were highly skeptical, yeah? highly, and they watched us uh, closely. Now, the World Federation of Exchanges has two priority projects. One is sustainability. They are integrating in public listing sustainability criteria. They're building up knowledge sharing capabilities for listed companies. Some of them have training programs going on. Imagine that. So it shows you how fast things can change. So don't give up. True. Thank you. Thank you for that speech. I'm going to take your hand and walk around Stockholm and have you meet a couple of people <laughs> that needs to meet you. There's still a long way to go, yeah. I agree, but... Uh, you were you were mentioning three trends. I'm going to jump a bit from schedule. Do that. <laughs> I hope you're not getting impatient with me. But you were saying there are three kind of trends showing that uh, that CSR is here to stay. It's transparency, the nature of investment, and it's the uh, natural resources becoming more and more costly. Yeah. Which one would be the strongest of these three, would you say? Because you are saying there's a change going on. Yeah, these are long-term megatrends yes. which are here to stay. Uh, you could also call them irreversible, yeah. given where human progress is leading us in terms of demographics, technology. Um, it's hard to say. It's an interplay of all three of them. And uh, in some instances, it's more the disclosure notion that matters more. That is the driver uh, because the fear of making mistakes and the costs of getting it wrong are increasingly understood. Um, in some other instances, it's the rapidly expanding green space, you know, uh, say water management, uh, waste management. It's a booming business. Uh, so the opportunity space is growing so and in some cases it's an overlap of 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 all three of them introducing wondersuite from bluehost.com website creation is hard but now with bluehost you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique wordpress website or store right away from there you can customize your design colors and content and bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like google and bing from step-by-step -step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. 
That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. It's hard to see. It depends on the industry sector and the location. <laughs> You started off as an odd kind of odd entity in the UN system. And if you would look at the UN system, has the, the, the idea of businesses making a change, has that actually kind of happened within the UN as well? Or are you still the odd fellow in the organization? No, I'm quite proud and happy that one of my side activities has been to initiate and chair uh, what's called the UN private sector focal point movement, which... Uh, Uh, I remember the first meeting convened in 98. Uh, there were five youngsters uh, uh, feeling like a revolution is in the making. Uh, we have annual meetings now sharing internal knowledge within organizations, how do you make change within organizations. Uh, and the last meeting we had uh, in uh, Addis Ababa, uh, we, there were 200 uh, UN folks from 45 organizations at very senior level. Uh, so it's a proxy of how this agenda has moved upwards. I just mentioned a few organizations, UNICEF, with whom we work very closely on the children's principles. For them, corporate sustainability is a key now in, in engaging, finding solutions. So they have partnerships, collaboration from uh, from the classic old-fashioned fundraising down to very strategic partnerships uh, uh, on cause-related marketing, awareness creation, very advanced World Food Program equally. It couldn't work without private sector partnerships and collaboration. High Commissioner for Refugees, responsible for over 12 million refugee uh, without corporate partnerships uh, on education, on IT and uh, ID. Uh, uh, so a lot of progress has been made across UN organizations. I Yes, there's still an ongoing political debate at UN headquarters about the role of, of business, uh, mm. and that will never end, obviously. But I think UN organizations uh, which have a clear mandate and whose mandate and mission is relevant for the private sector and uh, organizations which have a capacity to deliver on the ground, very important, uh, they have come a long way. And I'm actually quite proud of, through the Global Compact, of having opened the doors. Remember, up to the late 90s, the UN and the private sector eyed each other with suspicion There was no uh, collaboration or relationship of any kind based on the Cold War experience. There was a whole legacy issue, you know, uh, suspicion was mutual suspicion. And through the compact, we basically created a level playing field. We want partnerships, but partnerships must be based on respecting UN values and principles. So not anything goes, not anything flies. If you want to partner with the UN, we also expect you to embrace good ethics as a, a strategy and as an operational priority. And I think that worked. It's a success story, I believe. That is a success story, opening up UN system. And what is the biggest challenge for cross-sectorial collaboration like that? The UN is highly decentralized, uh, so it's extremely difficult to come up with coherent approaches there. Uh, it's almost impossible. Again and again, there are calls for, you know, one-size-fits-all, top-down approach. Uh, <laughs> the post-Stalinists are still very much alive and the <laughs> linear <laughs> people. Uh, and we live in a fragmented world, you know, so we should embrace uh, fragmentation and, and, uh, and recognize that there are many, many flowers which uh, are growing and we should rather see how can we support the good flowers and what are the good flowers. I think the next big challenge is to get to grips better with uh, cost-benefit analysis of collaboration, of a better handle on impact. Uh, not easy in these areas because many of these collaborative efforts have a long, uh, uh, they require a lot of efforts to get them going. 
and caretaking. Um, and having a stronger eye on, on, on impact assessment will be helpful, showing where are the benefits and how can we make it work. On the cross-sector collaboration, I think it's a big issue which goes beyond the UN. I think there is good news. Uh, the news basically is that the more enlightened sustainability leaders in the corporate world recognize that it's not only important for my own company, but indirectly it also is important for the market where I operate. And if I invest a little bit in collaborative efforts with peers and even competitors, in the pre-competitive uh, space or in the non-core uh, space, then this actually helps to create market stability and maybe even grows the market overall. And that movement of collaboration is exploding currently. Huh? Uh, it's quite amazing how the number of partnerships is increasing, how business is also becoming more professional in making a few strategic choices where they invest. Again, much mm -hmm. of the additional collaborative investments is channeled through industry associations. Mm -hmm. This is where they get their revival from currently because these are the bodies they trust. And if they now are entrusted with sustainability partnerships, that's a good thing. We should welcome this. Uh, but then getting this collaborative knowledge uh, to scale still has many barriers uh, because most people still are used to a silo thinking or one-to-one -one relationship and building confidence in a, in a bigger collaborative undertaking requires a little bit of a mind shift as well. Yeah. Would you, could you be able to give an example of a collaborative uh, movement or happening? Yes, uh, we are very proud, for example, of uh, collective action against corruption. Uh, we have in, in India, in Brazil, in Nigeria, we have pretty big initiatives going on at country level there where it took quite some time to build first the coalitions. Who has an interest in reducing corruption? What is the business case in reducing transaction costs? Then who are the relevant players? We need a good mixture of local companies and multinationals. Then uh, who are the not yet corrupt government officials that are relevant in this mm. space? <laughs> okay, with whom can we sit around the table? So a lot of investment had to be made first in who are the right stakeholders. Yeah? Mm. Then you have to build a kind of a, a group that has an identity, so uh, we belong to something. And then you have to agree on what you want to achieve. Okay, In public procurement, we want to have a reform, we want to have integrity pacts. And what does it take to get there? So, and then, ah, we need a new disclosure framework. We need this and that in place. So this is what I would call a medium to long-term collaborative effort, mm. uh, which is multi-stakeholder. You often have civil society in there as well, public and private. Uh, and to build this coalition together, uh, you need to invest time first. And then you need an ongoing sustained will to make progress, uh, shared uh, goal setting. And that, to me, is a success story, a huge one, the collective action against corruption. Very, very important. So kind of a, a private observation is that very often when I see governments trying to work with businesses or businesses working together as well, the, one of the challenges is the timeline. Yeah. I, I would say that politicians would say it's success. It happened within five years. Why a business would be completely impatient with five years change. I mean, that's yeah. completely irrelevant to them. Yeah. So would you kind of agree with that observation that we need to kind of find a somewhere a landing between of saying how long Absolutely. will this change actually take? Absolutely. Actually, you, you're basically what you're saying is what are the barriers? And one is obviously the time frame. Uh, it's one. The other one is uh, the lack of horizontal uh, connectivity. People still think very linear. And uh, on, on the timeline, uh, I as when I think back, for example, or you see in, in finance, the most standard basic tool is the so-called net present value, meaning uh, analysts, they discount future in and outflows by arriving at the net present value and they apply uh, discount rates based on lending rates and then add a few risk premiums to it. Uh, it's totally inadequate to measure, for example, environmental externalities. And Nick Stern has eloquently uh, pointed his finger at this systemic weakness of financial markets and established methodologies. And this is the main reason why we are not pricing what is bad for us, carbon, yeah? 
because it happens in the future, it can be socialized, whereas financial returns short term can be internalized quickly. So we, we also need to realize that we have systemic barriers here and time frame is a key here. The other one is methods and tools, how we account for what we consider to be important. And these are big, big systemic failures of the marketplace basically for not overcoming uh, short-termism. Politics is guilty there as well. Some business leaders today would argue that it's politics which has become more short-term. Therefore, you know, it's increasingly difficult to have a long-term orientation. And I think it's true by and large. Uh, it's probably a price we are paying in our globalized world, you know, where politicians are more interested in, in daily uh, daily feedback and, and standing and ratings rather than being proud of defending a long-term vision and uh, on, on grounds of principle. I think the entire social uh, context has become more short-term, even consumers, individuals. Yeah, we are very impatient. We want instant solutions, instant news, and uh, the reflective, more serious uh, thinking is probably coming a bit away on a short string on that. I, I regret that. I hope there's a counter movement taking place that also looks, I hope so. In the financial world, by the way, there's some good news. The Principles for Responsible Investment now has 1,200 members, uh, over 40 US trillion dollars uh, theoretically represented there. Of course, only a small portion getting serious on sustainability. But financial markets, thanks to the financial crisis, <laughs> I should say, uh, are at least starting to move there. There's dozens of initiatives going on now by uh, asset owners to integrate environmental, social and governance issues into valuation and decision making. While asset managers still are very short term, you know, it's horrible that they go by nanoseconds only and, uh, and so forth. Uh, so sustainability is really not playing a role at all there. But on the asset ownership side, there is some good movements on the, on the making. And privately owned companies obviously have an advantage there. And so do state-owned companies, because they're not uh, the victim necessarily of short-termism. Uh, but I would agree, short-termism is a major barrier. So look, we should go for long-termism. I'm going to make one final kind of okay. return into the uh, to, to what you were talking about earlier, so because and I, I kind of caught with me of saying we need the global market to we need an open global market to see sustainable kind of sustainability thrive uh, on a global scale. But still, believing that there are, I mean, there is a catch of smaller states wanting to protect their raw material and then using legislation or to protect their, their sure. kind of raw material. Is, would you call that, would that, wouldn't that be kind of against what you're saying? And, and in my opinion, in my opinion, it's something that I would understand and encourage if politicians do. Yes, uh, well, there, there are, of market? course, trade-offs. I mean, the, you bring in at least two different aspects. One, uh, on the purely on the trade and investment side, I'm a strong, strong believer in classic liberal uh, approaches here. And I do believe the world is so interdependent already, it would be foolish and self-destructive to unwind it. Uh, and if you think about all the solutions that are now available, whether it's on the renewable energy, water treatment, uh, farm know-how, uh, agricultural efficiency, and you go, it goes on and on, these innovations can travel fastest and furthest only if there's openness. If there are barriers, they will not be adopted widely. Diffusion patterns of innovation uh, are most uh, uh, successful in an open environment where fair competition, so to speak, you know, allows the best solutions to travel the widest and the fastest. So we have to, technology transfer happens largely through the marketplace. And where there are, uh, you know, where there are solutions, they will find an application provided enabling environment encourages it. Now, on the incentive structure, governments, of course, have also security concerns and energy independence and so forth. So there's always a trade-off and there's, there's national ownership of some assets yeah, where, you know, uh, governments uh, make trade-offs between how much is uh, uh, our national managerial asset together versus where is the boundary with, with, with uh, competition and the market. And this line is drawn differently. 
depending on natural resource endowment, depending on uh, knowledge intensity of the economy. Uh, but historically speaking, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that markets that have embraced openness and uh, have been willing to, to face competition over time are also the ones that succeed. Because yeah. knowledge at the end of the day cannot be stopped at the border anymore. You have access to it one way or the other. But would it not still be kind of governed, well-governed markets? Of course. It wouldn't be an open market because oh. I, I think a strong government would say oh. it's all raw material and you have to make sure that if you're going to move people, you do it in a nice way. And yes. You know, so it has to be, there has to be ruler of the game and the ruler of the game obviously has to be the government. Absolutely. And that's that's. Uh, oh, absolutely. Sad. And th- there we have, as you very well know, we have a huge open challenge out there. We have many failing states where government governance is actually not existent. Um, The number of of internal conflicts is on the rise worldwide. We have total failure of states. Uh, It's problem number one. Uh, 70% of of extreme poverty has to do actually with failing states. Uh, All human misery is man-made. We should never forget. So it's failing states, problem number one. Always has been, by the way, I would argue historically, but currently is is ever more so. Secondly, there is also a need for policy coherence. Absolutely. We should aim at uh, moving towards more coherence wherever we can. And we, whether it's on, on labor issues, whether it's on climate uh, regulation or on any other public policy incentive side. So we should not abandon the old multilateral agenda. Very, very important. Uh, Without that, the world would move into competing regions uh, or if not smaller fragmented national entities. And I can, uh, a few proud words on Europe here. I left uh, Germany in 82, so I've watched the Berlin Wall come down uh, when I was in Zambia and I watched Europe from afar. To me, Europe is still the best beacon of hope, globally speaking. There are very few, there's no other region in the world where economic, political integration is pursued explicitly. You have efforts in Africa, East African community, uh, uh, West African communities, SADC, you have the ASEAN movement and so forth, you have NAFTA. Uh, but I do believe personally that the principle of economic integration supported by efforts to create more political coherence remains the only viable alternative we have to create overall stability and the framework necessary for sustainability to thrive. Mm. And this is where the political dimension is so, so important. Unfortunately, currently, we're moving in many parts of the world just in the opposite direction. If we zoom out and, and take a global perspective and view, I think you would be the best person to ask about the global view of things. Um, where, where could we find the bravest politicians? Often now at city level and at, uh, uh, <laughs> at the smaller, not necessarily at the federal, national level, there's lots of good innovation going on uh, you know, uh, at, at, at smaller community level where because of uh, the devolution of power, fragmentation of power, uh, we have also empowerment of smaller communities. And uh, most of the great, look here, we're in this beautiful city of Stockholm. I mean, the story here with how the water has been cleaned up here, it's, it's, it's amazing. Yeah? It's a huge success story. And I believe it was primarily the city of Stockholm which has engineered this miracle, uh, this transformation. Uh, People say you can drink the water here. No, I'm not sure it's true. Oh, yes. Would you, would you, you can. be able to tell me you? So <laughs> this yeah. is one yeah. great example, you know, uh, of uh, where leadership is. Yeah? Mm-hmm. So, so where do you have the most engaged consumers? Consumer, I would call them the sleeping uh, giant. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, I... There are four big drivers of corporate sustainability. One is obviously regulatory changes, you know, climate, carbon pricing, and so forth, anti-corruption. Uh, the second one is investors. Investors are still lagging behind, but catching up, very important. Uh, the third one, arguably, is educators. The future matters. Uh, there's some movement, but not yet there. And the fourth one, consumers, sleeping. Very selfish, very sleeping. Uh, some good movements here and there. Uh, we did this big survey with Accenture on global survey on consumer trends, and it confirmed what we knew already through anecdotal evidence. 
that in emerging markets, actually, consumer propensity to integrate sustainability criteria in purchasing decisions is actually higher than in OECD countries. Uh, and there are good explanations for that. I found that very encouraging. And if you go shopping in Brazil, in the favelas, and uh, uh, you know what poverty means, and uh, you know also what the downsides are, you have a higher level of consciousness about the implications of what you buy and how you buy it. That is true to some extent. Yeah? Mm. Then, of course, we see in some market niches real changes happening, uh, like in fashion, textile, uh, agriculture, uh, moving away from, from the wasteful consumption of just eating meat towards more you know, <coughs> vegetarian approaches, <laughs> mm. which I would also like to advocate, by mm. the way. <laughs> okay, wh where do we find the best NGOs? Uh, all over the world, I think. Uh, you have very well organized NGOs here in the northern world, obviously, uh, Save the Children and, and many others. I don't want to name them now, but mm -hmm. very dedicated, with strong infrastructure. But also in many developing countries, uh, you have a lot of groups that have popped up and that are very strong and effective. I recently, for example, I was in Lebanon. Yeah? Lebanon is a very odd country. They basically have no government. It's privatized because the government is, uh, is split between parties that truly hate each other and they make sure nothing can happen there. So it, it's a privatized economy and all social functions are carried out by NGOs, highly professional NGOs, highly effective, highly dedicated. So this third sector, you find it in everywhere now. That's the good news. And where do you find the most proactive companies? Don't say Scandinavia. Uh, Are you kind of tired of that answer? No, there, I'm, uh, so. well... It would be appropriate. Yeah. <laughs> it's actually the usual, what I like to think of, the most proactive and genuinely serious companies are those that are also most deeply integrated in the global value chain. And that's not necessarily a question of national headquarter or uh, a size of company, but uh, small and medium-sized companies that know how to compete in different markets and are successful understand that having high quality and good social norms is the best entry point. And there are many, many examples from all over the world. And we know of companies, uh, be it in Sri Lanka or elsewhere, that compete on the premise of quality and good treatment of people. Yeah? So you find it everywhere. And the best proxy here, I would argue, is degree of integration in the global value chain. The higher it is on average, the higher, uh, the better its performance on sustainability. Because it makes sense, you see. Uh, if you have a high standard, you can compete anywhere. If you have a low standard, you find it difficult to compete in high standard countries. So uh, if you unlock the potential from the beginning, uh, you actually have smooth sailing almost everywhere. And I, I used to have a theory saying that, that CSR, or all this kind of makeup that we're talking about, sometimes make up, cynically saying yeah. that, um, it, it, it's been there forever. It's been where, you know, the Swedish society was based on villages and you had the, the handelsman who was the one yeah. dealing with the, the shop and he would know the village basically and he would take social responsibility by saying, you don't have to pay today, you can pay tomorrow. And eventually he'll forget about you know the debt because he would pay it somewhere else. I mean that's that's a core CSR which is extremely local and just down to I know my neighbor and I'm going to face my neighbor tomorrow. I think you're touching on a very fundamental point. I would agree. In in my thinking also, I increasingly conclude it's really uh, your personal individual ethics that define your your sustainability performance. But we live today in a globalized world. Uh, we live in a highly division of labor with value chains going very deep. So the question now arises, how do you apply such an insight into an organizational context that makes sense and that works across countries, regions, and mm. maybe different industry sectors? That is, I think, the modern day challenge. How do you build organizational incentive structure that are based on ethics and good values? How do you have the proactive systems in place? and? The more you are integrated globally, the more you also depend on, on the system to support that because you no longer have this very personal connectivity. But at its core, that's what it is. 
it's uh, cynically speaking, you could say uh, the enemy is us, so to speak, because it's individuals, it's us in our decision making and the recognition of what's right and wrong and the empathy for the external environment and understanding that if the society thrives where you invest, then you will thrive and that just reaping short-term, you know, extract short-term financial gains at the expense of long-term is not a strategy that will make you successful a year later. So at its core, it's very trivial. I agree. And the village man probably knew it all. Mm, (laughs) Definitely. A kind of very technical question. Yeah. Um, you, in your blog, you started out by saying, Brigade is what you call it, CSR, Corporate Responsibility, Environmental, Social and Corporate Governance, or Sustainability. Is it important what you actually call it? Yes, at some level, yes. I think uh, <clears throat> our definition, and I think it's somewhere there, uh, we assume that the basic premise is long-term financial success goes in hand with environmental stewardship, social responsibility, and good governance, ESG. And we like to claim, and I am strongly believe in it, it should be based on universal principles. Because if you only manufacture your own homegrown interpretation, then we end up again in many contradictions. Human rights are universal. Its nature is recognized. Basic labor conditions, the world spent decades of defining what are the fundamental principles that govern decent workplace conditions. We should use them. Uh, Corruption is a very clear definition of what it means not to do bribery, extortion. Uh, So we should adhere where possible, I would argue, to universally recognized principles, because otherwise we we would fizzle out the whole thing. But at its integrated understanding, I think it is a challenge because many in the CSR or sustainability movement come only from one field, like the environmental stewardship or just the social dimension. And to integrate social, environmental and governance, I always add the chi, which arguably <laughs> you know, are very important, uh, into one coherent concept uh, is not such an easy undertaking. Uh, so at the corporate level, then every company needs to do its own materiality check but it should embrace universal principles as at least a a starting point, as an ethical basic framework on which then to build. And then depending on your industry sector or your corporate uh, uh, strengths, you want to then refine it and and, uh, come up with your own identity. But to make that point again, uh, corporate sustainability is the successful integration of environmental, social and governance issues into organizational strategies and management based on universal principles. And positively formulated, the selling point then is long-term financial success goes in hand with environmental stewardship, social responsibility and good governance. And it's these Actually, it's a quadruple bottom line. Yeah, yeah you could. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree to, to it because you're now saying that the content has to be there. The yes. content of basing it on principle, the content of these yeah. kind of fourth quadruple phase. But then the name can actually, because it then boils down yes. to each company saying, yes. this is what it means. We for never me, used the term CSR, never, yeah. ever. It was sometimes uh, associated with us. Uh, we use sustainability now quite often. Uh, yeah. It's. Uh, uh, in Asia, CSR basically means sustainability. Mm. Uh, so there are in, in the US, it's associated more mm. with mm. philanthropy. Every country comes from a different uh, background, so it has its own nomenclature. Yeah? So mm. we call it global compact. Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> call it what you like, but the content yeah. needs yeah. to be there. Exactly. You have given a lot of positive examples uh, that the movement is going on and that there is a positive development in the word. Do you ever despair in your work? Uh, There's always the half glass, half full uh, perspective. I would agree. Uh, My colleagues sometimes say, look, what are we doing really here? You know, we are giving all the companies a free ride, you know, they're claiming to be active and then look what scandals are happening and this is happening. Are they really serious? But I think like everything in life, uh, you always have two perspectives at least, you know, it is the glass half full, half empty, 
on the one hand, enormous progress. 15 years ago, only a dozens of companies would even recognize that human rights matter. You know, look today how the world has changed. On the other hand, so many companies still sitting on a fence, still pretending it's not of none of our business. The great majority is still uh, sitting on the sidelines, so to speak, uh, watching the space probably, but not yet sure, should I or should I not get moving uh, in an explicit, focused manner. Uh, and that movement is growing, that's the good news. And I think the key driver is happening now is more from the finance side. I'm actually quite optimistic that finance is catching up with business. They're still lagging behind five to seven years, but finance increasingly is integrating into analysis and decision-making non-financial issues, environmental, social governance issues, because they're just becoming more and more material from a uh, uh, financial uh, uh, aspect. So corruption, climate exposure, carbon exposure, social treatment can be a liability or an asset. And that's where I think the next wave of driver is coming from, from valuation of financial markets. Hopefully consumers will also wake up more and we will have more wisdom there. <laughs> and it's, I understand uh, in this country here, there's some great movements going on, mm. but in other countries, uh, not much is happening yet. Yeah. Great movements, but very disorganized movements yeah. in, in consumer market. But that's how it is, yeah. 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 When when you were looking for inspiration, when you feel that I'm now look, looking at the glass thinking it is half empty, where would you turn to? For the opportunity music? space. Uh, it's actually amazing how innovation uh, continues you know, uh, to create new solutions. And it's really the innovative opportunity space. And this, I think, is quite clear too, that uh, the opportunity space is growing, you know, uh, and it's actually on the solution side. There are great projects, look what Maersk has been doing, for example, the shipping line in reducing emissions yeah, and cross-sectoral collaboration, a combination of different technological progress on the one hand, new organizational forms on the other, at the same time working on changing actually the rules in countries. Yeah. Uh, this, to me, is, is uh, the encouraging side. Uh, breakthroughs, uh, we should never give up hope to, you know, whether it's the storage of energy, one of the next big breakthroughs to be watched at space, or uh, it's just beautiful to see how, uh, how solar energy is becoming ever more price competitive. Uh, and it's also great to see how, you know, some industries are actually moving forward on the circular economy. I mean, it's one of the next big uh, challenges ahead and technology here is key so technology that's where the inspiration is coming from thank you that was the kind of it was extremely fruitful to listen to you yes speak. i think i could do it the whole afternoon but i don't think we have the whole afternoon <laughs> we don't i have don't think time. you have the whole afternoon <laughs> thank you very much time. for taking your time to come and talk to us oh, it was my pleasure thank, thank you, you. <laughs>